Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week on the show, I talk to the editor of the incredible new Michael J. Fox movie, Still. Chris Wasser reviews Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, as well as a new Japanese movie, Plan 75. There's a remarkable new Irish movie in the cinemas called Lakelands, and I talk to its two directors, producers, and indeed writers. Plus, we return to Bridgerton. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. There was a show last week, but it was only on the radio because it involved a lot of music, so it wasn't on the podcast. So if you didn't see any podcast dancing, that's what it was. Uh, podcasting music is just impossible, almost. You play about three seconds of it. So... We just had it on the radio and it was the best TV theme tunes of all time, as chosen by me. And a lot of people got in touch saying they like some of the choices, someone saying we missed a lot, like Hawaii Five-0, Dallas. Uh, but a lot of people were delighted that I chose, uh, believe it or not, the theme tune from The Greatest American Hero. So thank you for everybody who got in touch. All emails are read, all texts are read, all tweets are read. We even try and respond to most of them. But if we didn't, apologies for that. I was away last week. I was in Spain, sunny Spain, which was beautiful. You don't realise you're missing the heat until you're in the heat. So it was lovely. And as if that wasn't enough in my whirlwind life, I cannot go to Bruce Springsteen and not tell you about it because, as you know, regular listeners, I'm a massive fan. I was there on Sunday night and it was wonderful. The thing is, there's a lot of talk of, you know, this was the best show he ever did. And it's it's hard to know if that's objectively true or it's a combination of factors that as Bruce fans, we're just so glad he's back because it's been a while with COVID and all that stuff. If we're all getting older, because a lot of Bruce fans are, because I remember the last time he played in Crow Park, four years ago, I think it was at this stage, saying, oh, that's the best I've ever seen him. So, But don't get me wrong, it was absolutely amazing. And he did a full electric version of Born in the USA. You know, he's a strange relationship with that song, but he really, on the Sunday night, just sang it like this anthem, which he, you know, is kind of conflicted about the meaning that took out of it, but it was a brilliant version. It was the best encore I've ever seen. He just, it was hit after hit. So a lovely evening was had by all. Now, uh, in TV this week, I was watching this. This is a great honour. How difficult was it to be chosen? Someone who can make lots of babies, someone who can read, someone with all the social graces, someone with a royal bloodline. That is all they required. It is not an honour. And you could have told them to choose someone else, someone stupid enough to want it. They did not want someone stupid. They wanted you. Adolphus, think. Why me? He could have anyone, anyone. And yet they came hunting all the way across the continent for me. There is a reason for that. Because you are special. Special. I am a stranger to them. They are strangers to us. You cannot think me this ignorant. There is reason they wanted me, a stranger. And it cannot be a good reason. There's a clip from Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story. So this is a prequel or an origin story of Queen Charlotte, the character from the much-loved show Bridgerton. Now, normally for about two minutes, I chat to you about what I've been watching this week. But it turns out News Talk's Kira Tracy is somewhat besotted with Bridgerton. And she has been devouring Queen Charlotte. Hi, Kira. Hi, John. Thank you so much for having me on. 
Well, you, you, you petitioned, you know, you just said how much Bridgerton <laughs> means to you. No, I'm joking, of course. But listen, for listeners, this is a Bridgerton story, as the name implies, but it's kind of an origin story of how Queen Charlotte became who she did, right? It is, yeah. Um, slightly different this time around because it's actually created by Shonda Rhimes, who is a genius behind Grey's Anatomy. So slight different approach. And I think it really shows it's a lot of fun. Um, and I think it's a really good, a really strong spin-off, actually, probably better than the actual Bridgerton, like original franchise. Wow, that's a bold statement. So what exactly is happening in it? Okay, so as you say, it features, it kind of focuses in on Queen Charlotte, who is kind of in the background in season one and two of Bridgerton. She's not the main character by any means. And this is all about her at 17 when she marries King George of England um, as, yeah, 17-year-old and is kind of looking at the dynamic between the two of them, how she copes with this new culture in England because her character is actually German. And it still has the steaminess of the, the kind of classic Bridgerton first two seasons. However, I think it also goes into a lot of um, interesting topics and serious topics that they hadn't kind of gone into before. So it touches on race, queer love, mental health. And I think that's where it kind of really differs between uh, this series and Bridgerton season one and two. So we heard in the clip there, she's in essence being brought to marry the King of England against her will, but it turns out he's not a bad looking chap. So it may not be as bad as she thought. Yeah. Yeah. They go, they actually, I don't want to get spoiled too much, but you do see from the kind of offset, they have this kind of chemistry, both they get along and like you say, then they're both good looking people. So you think it, it goes smooth sailing, but of course, like we see in Bridgerton season one too, there is a kind of will they, won't they, there are some kind of differences between them that make it a difficult relationship on the offset. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned queer love, mental health, all sorts of things going on. I've only watched the first one and a half, but but I did enjoy it immensely. But it, within the confines of it's Bridgerton, so it's kind of daft occasionally. Yeah. There's lots of sex, which I've no problem with, the more the merrier. <laughs> so it is Bridgerton through and through, with just maybe a slightly more out there edge. Yeah, there really is. Like you say, it has that core essence of kind of steaminess and love and, and lust, which is the kind of staple of Bridgerton. But yeah, it definitely divulges into more, like it doesn't it doesn't take centre stage again by any means. However, it does kind of answer a few questions, like especially when it comes to looking at race in, in Bridgerton season one and two, it's kind of colourblind. It doesn't really mm. talk about, you know, societal tensions, whereas in Queen Charlotte, it does mention that and it does kind of bring up those questions that you may originally have when you watched uh, Bridgerton. Yeah. So as a Bridgerton devotee and speaking for other Bridgerton fans, do you think they're going to be wildly happy with this? Yeah, I do, actually. I think it really does uh, colour in some of the background information and not just Queen Charlotte, but we also look at uh, Lady Bridgerton, Lady Danbury, and it does kind of create more of a backstory, which makes me super excited for Bridgerton season three, because we are getting to know these characters in a lot more depth. And I think it will make their roles a lot more fundamental when we look at season three of Bridgerton, because again, we're going to be knowing so much more about these people. And it does fill that stopgap while we wait for season three. Yes, of course. And this this first landed three years ago on Christmas Day. And, you know, it was this massive thing because, I don't know, we were all in the middle of lockdown. People had the blues. It was, you know, pure escapism. So this is escapism with a bit of an edge. So, I mean, if you had to give it stars out of five. 
Honestly, I, I see no reason why I shouldn't give it five, to be honest. I'm not wow. left wanting, you know, any more from it. I just think it's brilliant and I really hope we see more of it too. Okay, well, that is a whopping five stars for the new season of Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story. I should say it's on Netflix, but I think every Bridgerton fan in the world knows exactly where it is. I've been talking to a Bridgerton devotee. He <laughs> yes. talks Kira Tracy. Thank you, Kira. Thank you, John. We turn to the week's new cinema releases, and we're going back a week because as earlier listeners to the show will know I was away last week so we didn't get to carry and feature I suppose one of the big releases of the year which is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 which we're going to be reviewing and also a new movie from this week a Japanese movie centred about euthanasia as far as I understand called Plan 75 delighted to be joined now by film critic and arts writer Chris Wasser Chris hello hello John how are you Good. I'll tell you what, I haven't seen Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. I haven't seen Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. However, I have a tangible memory of seeing Guardians of the Guardians of the Galaxy, the first one, which wasn't yeah. called Volume 1, and being really surprised by how damn good it was. Funny, warm, uh, more akin to Star Wars than a Marvel movie, is my memory of it. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of uh, Star Wars, a little bit of Indiana Jones and space, I suppose. Um, yeah. Yeah, when the first Guardians came along, it kind of burst that bubble that Marvel had unfortunately created at, at the time where the films were kind of becoming a little bit too serious for their own good. And there was always a little bit of humor in the earlier kind of Iron Man installments. Uh, you might recall how the, the, the first couple of Thors were way too po-faced. Uh, before Taika Waititi came in, James Gunn thought, you know, no, let's have a little bit of color. Let's remind you know, audiences and ourselves that these things are based on comic books and the comic books are supposed to look, you know, vibrant. They're supposed to sound fun. They're supposed to be for a younger audience. Mm. Um, yeah, so Gunn had a lot, an awful lot of fun with that first installment and a great and, and added a great soundtrack too. Kind of lost its way with the second. So um, I yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just this whole idea of Peter Quill looking for his father and then when he finds him, there was a little bit of a shrug of the shoulders from everybody. You know, is that it? You know, these things are yeah. actually supposed to go somewhere. There's been a bit of a gap between that one and this one. And that was for a number of reasons. I mean, you know, the the world essentially ending in the middle of all that show, it might, might yes. be a big one. Um, but uh, somewhere along the way, James Gunn wrote a sequel to 2017's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And the following year, somebody unearthed all of these offensive tweets that James Gunn had made a few years prior. And it didn't look good. Now, let's, you know, we won't get into the material of the tweets, but let's just say he joked about things that he really shouldn't have. Yeah, they and, were great. And this isn't, you know, we're not drowning in wokeism here, but they they were quite unpleasant. I think most moderate people would accept that. But as you say, let's, we, we don't have to get into that now. No, you're right. They were quite unpleasant and he really shouldn't have joked about them, uh, the things that he was. And he said that, he even said that, you know, he's, he's better as a person. And, you know, earlier on in his career, certainly as a comic and an early writer, like he wanted to be provocative and he wanted to get attention, but that he was a different person, a better person. All that, that, that said, you know, Disney said, look, we're going to have to let you go. The thing that I don't think anybody expected, you know, especially Disney, was for everybody to rally around James to be gone, gone because he's so well liked. And because he'd done such a, uh, he had done such a good job on the first two Guardians films. So you had a case where the entire cast of Guardians, uh, various uh, industry giants and, and, and publications in America, people who had worked with him before, all signing the necessary petitions to have James Gunn reinstated into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And you then had a case where Disney listened, and you don't see this very often, they rehired him. So that's when he started work on this sequel. But also along the way, uh, John, he started working for DC, which... 
you think is a bit you think is a bit of a no-no but apparently James Gunn is allowed to play for uh, for both teams in this competition and they are two very distinct teams but 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 let's not get into that now but that is a bit yeah. like an Evertonian signing for Liverpool sorry <laughs> Everton are on my mind at the moment. Let's yeah. move on, though. Okay, so we're up to volume three now. Do we have uh, Bradley Cooper voicing a raccoon? Do we have Chris Pratt back as Vin Diesel here? We do. We have all the band. Uh, yes, we've got Bradley Cooper as raccoon. Chris Pratt is Peter Quill. Vin Diesel is, you know, basically saying the one line over and over, and you know, with different volumes, different variations. That being, I am Groot. They're all doing the same thing, but the story is fresh the story is what makes it a real difference here now it shouldn't surprise you to hear that you you might need to do a bit of homework in advance and that you know this is the 32nd installment in the marvel cinematic universe you will have to have seen previous uh, uh, films but i'm glad to report that it's not just one big advertisement or one big glorified trailer for the next film and the next one it's very much a self-contained you know uh guardians of the galaxies you know uh, uh action in space caper where you know it's it's all about the the characters on the screen and the story we're not looking at the next avengers film so if you've been keeping up with these things and if you saw the last avengers film you'll know that chris pratt's peter quill character he's in a bit of a funk because gamora played by zoe zadania uh you know they finally got together in avengers uh infinity war but then she died you know thanos killed her and although there is an alternate version of her floating around there it's not the gamora from the guardians of the galaxy and she has no recollection of her time with peter she has no recollection of her time with this crew she's now a ravager off you know kind of doing you know various space adventures with sylvester stallone and his crew in this in this universe so peter's not happy about that but he's gonna have to put his bad mood aside because a new threat is in town and we have this high-powered super being known as adam warlock played by will poulter he's kind of been teased over the last few guardians films he crash lands on the Guardians uh, distant universe uh, headquarters and he is looking for trouble. He's also looking for raccoon, uh, Rocket the Raccoon, uh, voiced by Bradley Cooper, who, as you know, is this genetically engineered uh, raccoon who's also an ingenious weapon master and a pilot. And it's because of his mysterious past that Warlock has been sent here to retrieve him. But the Guardians are not going to let him go. So a fight ensues. They prevent a kidnapping, but unfortunately, Rocket is injured. And in order to save Rocket's life, Peter, as I said, has to put his bad mood aside. He has to round up the Guardians of the Galaxy, and they're going to have to embark on a rescue the raccoon mission across the universe. <laughs> okay, so it's a space quest to find raccoon. Does it work as a space quest and indeed as a movie? It absolutely does. Um, I went into this with low expectations because I was thinking it's been a rough, uh, you know, it's been a rough time for, for Marvel over the last couple of years. I think, you know, we were talking about this with Ant-Man earlier in the year, which turned yeah. out to be the first, you know, commercial misfire in a long time for Marvel Studios. Um, that ever since, you know, 2019's Avengers Endgame, which was supposed to be the end of this whole thing, or at least that's the, the lie that we were sold. I think the yeah. films have kind of lacked focus and imagination, mm -hmm. certainly, uh, you know, a direction and also, you know, a, a big villain. It's all about multiverse travels and what have you. And that, that and setting up the next story and all that. Yeah. And it's all, it's all, it doesn't, it's not quite as tight and it's not quite as well thought out as it thinks it is. It's certainly not as quite as well thought out as, as you know, that, that original Thanos saga. And also, you know, when you had Thor and you had Iron Man on board, it's just, it's been a little flimsy. Um, so it kind of falls to this film and it falls to James Gunn to not just restore our faith in this whole thing, but also how do you close out this particular franchise? 
you know, successfully, because this is going to be the last time that Gunn works with these characters and also works at Marvel Studios for the time being, because as I said, he's he's now, you know, running the show over DC. He's got a Superman film lined up, various other projects. He, this is it for this current mm-hmm. Guardians film. Um, so that's an awful lot of pressure. But I think, you know, everyone here, they were, they, were, they were all up for it. And it helps that there's, you know, a proper story, that it's coherent. As I said, it's self-contained. Um, it remembers to have an awful lot of fun with these characters. And Gunn, I'm not sure what he was saying, you know, when they were, you know, rehearsing this thing or workshopping it, but he, he gets the best out of his actors in this film, better than we've ever seen them. Because I don't think... A lot of people have been celebrating Chris Pratt as this character for years, but I don't think he's ever really cracked it. I don't think it's ever really worked all that well for him. But he just, he nails it here. You know, he's it, dramatically, it's probably the best we've seen of him. He's quite funny. Um, you know, his performance is quite moving. Uh, we've got great work from Bradley Cooper in the voice booth. Uh, mm-hmm. We have the usual, you know, uh, fantastic stuff out of, out of Dave Bautista, who is still, I don't know how he's doing it, but he's still kind of trading in that here's a muscular mountain of a man who could just destroy you with one finger, but also he just comes out with the funniest things. Uh, so he's he's very good in this. And I think also, given her work in this and also in Avatar, I don't like the Avatar films, but Zoe Saldana is still doing great stuff while dressed up as an alien. So the performances mm. and the story certainly work for me. And is it elegiac? Like, is it a sense this is a swan song? Does it? You don't have to say what the ending is, but does it tie things up? Yes, absolutely. Um, and it just... It, it helps John again, you know, it sounds like I'm repeating myself, but it puts the, it, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 puts itself first in that we're not looking towards the future. You're going to have your usual Easter eggs and various yeah. mid and post credit scenes, but this is all about wrapping up this story. And there is a sense here that we might not actually see these characters again. Of course, you never say never. And you might see yeah. someone, you know, you might see a cameo from someone or maybe all of them at some point down the line. But I think for this series, yeah, the whole time you're watching it, you're thinking, okay, this this is an ending. Um, and I should say as well, it looks fantastic. It's quite inventive in the storytelling department, but also in the effects uh, department, because that's, that's, a big, that's been a big problem, I think, for a while. We've talked before about how, uh, there's stories of, uh, you know, special effects uh, supervisors being overworked at Marvel and how the last couple of Marvel films have looked a little bit, you know, flash, certainly in the special effects department, the effects not being not that all that special. Um, this looks like a comic book, you know, there's no, there, there's no, uh, you know, there's no cutting corners in this thing. Yeah. You know, it just, it, it, it just pops off the screen. And again, there's another great soundtrack, probably a, a few too many tunes, probably a few okay. too many slow-mo moments and probably a few too many supporting characters um but when it all comes down to it when it all comes down to it that team still worked really well for me yeah okay wonderful i'm you know i'm this is not the day for it i'm slowly working on a theory about they're starting to use music too much in movies but there's a there's a creeping feeling i'm having as much as i enjoy a good soundtrack that there was an overuse of music in certain sections of cinema so listen that sounds like a natural successor to volume one in a certain sense in terms of quality so what are you going to say stars wise for guardians of the galaxy volume three i think it's probably the the the, the best marvel film in a long time and also john extraordinarily moving i did shed a tear okay. i think it'd have to be i think it'd have to be made of stone not to i i, I will say just briefly there is a devastating side tale where we learn all about rocket's past and how he essentially got his voice and it, you know, it's at times gorgeous, at times difficult to watch, and then, you know, just ultimately, you know, just heartbreaking. Wow. Um, so, yeah, this is an end for these characters, and it, and it's a beautiful one. Uh, it's funny, it's entertaining, it's the best one I've had with a superhero film in a long time, so we'll go with four stars. 
an emotional Chris Wasser giving yeah, Guardians don't get, of the Galaxy. You don't see that often. You don't. You don't. Excellent. Well, that sounds good. We better take a quick clip. Drax, stay here with Rocket. Watch him. That's who they're coming for. I want to come. No. Mantis, watch Drax. Groot, you know what to do with these. Push down on it. What? Push it down. I am pushing down on it. Push the button. It looks like you're pushing the keyhole. The what? There's a button under the handle. Press that in. Okay. Now what? Open the door. That is a stupid design. And your instructions were now very that was Guardians unclear. of the Galaxy Volume Three a clip there, which was in cinemas from last week, but it's going to run for a long time, it would seem. And Chris Ross Wasser gave it a whacking four. Now, Chris, something completely different is Plan Seventy Five, set in Japan, a kind of social drama of sorts, looking at euthanasia. Yes, uh, social speculative drama with, you know, maybe a touch of a a subtle sci-fi element in that we're dealing with the future, a future in Japan where a largely elderly population um, has put basically a huge burden on the country's finances. And to relieve that burden, the government introduces a state-funded euthanasia package for people over the age of 75. Now, you might be immediately thinking that is grim. Um, but in this scenario, you know, we jump ahead a few years to, you know, the plan 75, as it's called in this story is working and that some people are happy to accept this offer. They're happy to accept various packages. One of them involves having, you know, accepting a thousand dollar cash payments to kind of spend on whatever you like. You can put it towards your funeral costs. If you have even more money, you can kind of enjoy which seems like the wrong term to use um this uh deluxe almost like a hotel stay before uh you accept this deal um so some people are actually taking this and they're and they're happy to but other people like mm-hmm. a, a character named michi who's 78 years old she you know she she's horrified that this is you know this is it for her and you know she still, she still wants to keep working she still wants to keep living she's keen to prove that you know i am a valuable member of society so we have miki's story and then we also have Hiromu, portrayed by uh, Hayato Isamura, and he's a salesman on the plan 75 initiative and we see that he's quite he's quite chatty he's quite charming and there's no moral quandaries, at least that's what we think at first, about, you know, what he's doing. He doesn't really feel too bad at handing out, you know, voluntary debt deals like secondhand cars. Um, he's a good salesman. He gets the job done. But when all of a sudden a relative of his shows up at his desk, that's when we see that he might have a problem with what he's doing. Okay. Now, I mean, it does sound grim, but you're saying there's enough kind of, I suppose, people who are quite comfortable with this idea that it, it, it becomes a thought experiment as opposed to something very dark. That's it, yeah. Um, and yeah, in the film, I, as I said, we're seeing this sale, this younger salesman who hasn't really kind of you know thought about the implications of what this might mean for you know the, the the people in his life, and he hasn't really thought about what it would be like if he was in this position because he's young, and maybe you know the director and co-writer she Hayakawa, she's you know she's she's showing us here's what young people might think of this. They might think, oh, this is the right thing to do. And then here is an elderly person who absolutely does not want to do this. Um, Great ideas, fantastic ideas, and a Mm -hmm. wonderful cast. Um, It's just, it's a little bit overstuffed and it's a little bit overcooked. And what I mean by that is I haven't even mentioned a third story strand where we follow this Filipino carer portrayed by Stephanie Ariane 
who is working away from home. She's in Japan and she's desperate to raise funds for a sick child away from away from where she's living. So she accepts a job on the program and we kind of see how that, that impacts her. She, her story is kind of like an afterthought. And how could it not be? Because she, it's, it's competing against two very strong stories. Yeah. What did you say, John? Imagine I was telling you two amazing stories, but I kept interrupting myself all the time. And you would yeah. you would think, oh, he's lost momentum. And, and I want to know what's going to happen. I want to know more about Miki. I want to know more about Hiromu. That's the way I felt when I was watching this. I thought, why does this film keep getting in the way of itself? It was a bit of a shame. Okay. And does the care worker story uh, intertwine with the other two stories? Yes. You, you, I mean, it's kind of one of those cases where you know everything is going to converge in the end. Okay. Um, yeah. And when it does, it's not quite the satisfactory payoff that I'd hoped for. Um, okay. But that being said, look, I, I do. I love the ideas. I mean, it's almost like someone was... Uh, you know uh, the, the the writer and, and director here, Shi Hayakawa. It's almost like they they had watched Logan's Run and that little bit, isn't it? You know where the um, nobody is allowed to age over the age of thirty. Um, yeah. It's it's a little bit like that idea, and then expanding it and putting into it a real world context, and also a fascinating build up as well. Because the first five minutes promise a kind of a different film, although maybe I'm I'm a little glad that it didn't go down this route or didn't show us too much. Where you have this tragedy, I won't say exactly what happens, but you have this horrible incident that occurs that actually you know kickstarts all of this you know then that and that and that the government turn to and say well we need to respond to this and it's where you have young people essentially turning against the elderly so uh yeah great ideas beautifully performed it's wonderful to look at too with a with a, with a gorgeous soundtrack with a gorgeous score i just felt a little bit frustrated with you know with 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 this, this with the stories constantly interrupting each other Okay. It sounds like there's a lot of food for thought there and an intriguing watch, but just maybe slightly disappointing with where it all went. So what would you say stars wise for Plan 75, which is on general release from this week? This Friday? Yeah, it's going to be in selected cinemas and I still think it's worth the watch, especially on the big screen. So I'd say a solid three stars, um, okay. but just, you know, lower your expectations a little bit. Well, to, you know, ape the late great uh, George Bourne if you see one Japanese social sci-fi drama this week make sure it's Plan 75 that was Chris Wasser giving Plan 75 three stars and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 gets a whopping four Chris thanks a million thanks John up next still a Michael J. Fox movie welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show I'm John Fardy now take a listen to this everyone talks now about owning their narrative. So the sad sack story is Michael J. Fox gets this debilitating disease and it crushes him. Yeah, that's boring. Before Parkinson's, what did it mean to be still? I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know I was ever still. Now that was the unmistakable voice of Michael J. Fox talking to the director, Davis Guggenheim, because Michael J. Fox is the subject of a fantastic new documentary called Still, a Michael J. Fox movie, which is in uh, select cinemas. It's in the Lighthouse in Dublin. It's in the Palais in Galway. And it's on Apple TV from this Friday, the 12th of May. And it is a wonderful piece of work because it is two things. It is Michael J. Fox sitting down recounting the story of his life. And the story of his life is, I suppose, set into two distinct parts. His incredible rise to fame as the star of Family Ties and Back to the Future. And then 30 years ago, being diagnosed with Parkinson's. And he sits down for an interview and is 
at times taking pills to manage his Parkinson's during the interview. But what it all, and it's a very emotional interview, and it is interspersed with tremendous clips from his career that have this weird thing of almost give part of a story. So they take clips from Teen Wolf or uh, Family Ties, the sitcom he was in, and Back to the Future and uh, Bright Lights, Big City. And they play these clips during this documentary about his life and they almost seem like they're his life. It's remarkable. It's incredibly emotional at times. There was a lot to his life I hadn't realized. He was a very active kid who could never sit still. And that's a very interesting word in the whole course of this movie. It is directed by Davis Guggenheim, who gave us the great and inconvenient truth. But what you might not know is that it's edited by an Irishman called Michael Hart, who's had previous success with things like Three Identical Strangers, a great documentary from a few years ago, which was Emmy nominated. And the editing in this is incredible. Uh, and it was it was partially Michael's thought to do a documentary along with Davis about Michael J. Fox. So I caught up with Michael Hart earlier in the week. Have a listen to this. Great to talk to you. I, I, I enjoyed hey. the film tremendously. And, you know, I'm a man in his 40s oh, and have vivid memories of going to see Back to the Future 2 in the cinema. I don't know if I saw a yeah. dodgy Betamax copy of of the first one or something like that. But I and, and, you know, I've been a fan ever since. And then Family Ties and all those things. I gather your fondness for Michael J. Fox might have started with a Back to the Future screening in Lifford in Donegal. Is that correct? <laughs> in, in Letterkenny. Letterkenny. Letter Whoops. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to get that That's wrong. Not too far, not too far away. Um, I'm like you, I was the same as Back to the Future 2. I remember it was the first film I saw in the cinema in, in Letterkenny. And I had no idea what what was happening because I hadn't seen the first. So it didn't make any sense to me. But I was kind of mesmerized, especially by the kind of future scenes of him on the hoverboard and all that kind of thing. And um, a week later, then I rented Back to the Future 1 and, um, and then realized I had six months to wait until the third one came out. So it was all kind of happening at the same time. And uh, it was, uh, and the rest is history. I just fell in love with the movie, you know. And and, yeah. and, and, and as I said to somebody recently, the, the older I get, what I realised, the reason I think the film works more than anything is because of his performance and, and, mm. and, and how he pulls that. And the whole thing kind of holds together because of Michael J. Fox and how, how good he is in it and his comic timing. And um, he's the he's the point of view for the audience in, in what's basically a ludicrous kind of situation which is just a guy time travels and his mother falls in love with him but you buy it because <laughs> it's Michael J. Fox <laughs> yeah so then fast forward 30 years and my understanding is you were keen to maybe make a documentary about him and then there was a happy dovetailing of events that the great Davis Guggenheim who gave us an inconvenient truth mm. and all sorts of things wanted yeah, to do yeah. it as well and he'd seen your movie three identical strangers so you got on board together is that it exactly we had worked i had worked on a documentary called three identical strangers about five years ago and we watched a lot of michael j fox movies when we were making that because the first act of that film is very much and it feels like an 80s movie and we wanted to replicate that mm. so as we were doing as we were watching his movies and uh, we were myself and the director at the time of three identical strangers tim wardle we had thought Michael J. Fox would be an amazing subject matter for, for a documentary. Got in touch with his agents and they said he's already up and running with, as you said, the great Davis Guggenheim. And uh, 
Davis and Tim at a meeting and it's on Zoom and thankfully Tim said you got to use my editor without a doubt he's he, he's not he's not only a good editor but he he knows this story he knows it inside out and he knows the material mm-hmm. and so myself and Davis got on a Zoom one night in the middle of the night and uh, talked about Donegal more than anything and um, and and then decided let's do this I'll, I I had just had had a one year old. So I couldn't travel, but he promised to make it work that we, uh, that you know, my family would be looked after. We'll go to LA and make it there, make some of it there, and I can cut some of it back in London. And uh, yeah, that was it. Yeah. So for people who haven't seen it, and it's 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 out this weekend in a few cinemas in Ireland and also on Apple TV, it has a two pronged approach in that we have this amazing gathering of all these things he's done and such a brilliant use of clips from everything from Family Ties to Teen Wolf. And then you also have him sitting in front of a camera talking to Davis uh, in Mm. now about his life and times. So I'm going to go back to the Family Ties stuff in a minute, but in terms of him talking directly to camera, were you in the room for that? No. I no no because if, I I try not to for the interviews because I try to keep a distance from that when I'm in the edit. Um, yeah. I like to watch it as if the audience would watch it. Yeah. So if I'm in the room, I'll pick up one more energy that doesn't exist. If I'm you know if I was in the edit, um, I have to see it entirely from the audience's perspective. So I like to not do that. Also, I didn't want to meet Michael J. Fox until we had the film up and running properly until we had a good version of it. Yeah. Um, because I think objectivity was really important in this film because also I'm too much of a Michael J. Fox fan. I think if I got any closer to him, I probably would have ruined the movie. Um, <laughs> so he, he, uh, we had a, had a version of this movie, which was just archive. Um, that, that's how we started. We started in the edit. We, we normally do the edit last, but the film began in the edit where we looked at all the archive with him and all his audiobooks. Um, any all of his movies, we looked at Family Ties and Spencer and just went through it and kind of did an, uh, what we call an assembly, which is a kind of rough cut of, of uh, two hours of, of his life in archive. And I, I got excited as an editor. I was like, we can tell this entirely through archive. And um, But we, Davis decided to interview Michael J. Fox to fill some gaps in uh, of what we thought were the gaps of, of the, the documentary at the time. And uh, he shot a four-hour interview with him one day and said, rang me and said, you should look at this. And so I remember the day I went into the edit, the morning, watching, in L- I was in LA at the time, and I watched his interview for four hours. Normally when I watch an interview, I'll start for 10 minutes, take a break, watch 10 more minutes and take another break and take some notes and think about it and whatever. I watched that interview in one go for four hours. It was e- easily the best interview I've ever had in an edit. I mean, I, I was shocked at how good it was and how funny he was and honest. Yeah. To the point I spoke to Davis and I rang Davis and said, I think you found the heart and soul of the movie here. And um, this is, and everything else that we've done is secondary to this. Mm-hmm. Needs to support this interview. This is, this is the film, you know? So yeah. that was, that was a real moment in the edit when we realized that, you know? Which yeah, just seems silly to say now when you watch the movie, you're like, well, what, do you, what do you mean? But, but that's just the process. You know? Well, no, just on that, because the interview is powerful and he comes across as funny, emotional. At times he's upset. And why wouldn't he be? You know, he's been dealing with Parkinson's exactly. for, for, for 30 years. But at other times to say he's hilarious. He described himself as a cockroach. Nothing will kill him. Yeah. But, but, but the trawl you did for the archive is incredible because you're able to. Thank you. 
not to get too highfalutin about it, but narratively tell his story with clips from uh, Big City, Big Lights, uh, uh, Family Ties. And I know he said, I, I saw it in Donegal Daily or Donegal Live, that he wanted to compliment you on what a beautiful job you did, particularly with scenes you took of him and his wife, Tracy Pollan. So that trawl through the archive, it must have been exhausting. You must have watched hours yeah. of things because the stuff is <laughs> incredible because it's in parts of it. You've taken bits from family ties and it's like he's talking about his life now. It's incredible. Yeah. I, look, I, I have an ability in the edits and you, any, if you ever talk to any directors I work with, I kind of drive them mad because I like to watch everything and see everything before I do any cutting. And, and it, it means it takes the edit a bit longer but I, I get obsessive. I get obsessive about it. They freak out because they want to start cutting. Um, but, but the good ones let you do it because it is worth its weight in gold. And on this, I remember thinking, I don't know how we're going to do this. I, I do not know. This is like we've got thousands of hours to go through. And um, Davis gave me the time to do it when I proposed the idea to him. I said, look, I, I need to do this. It, it was amazing. He just gets it. And, and he said, do it. I said, I need at least eight weeks to start with. Mm-hmm. to just go through all his material. We already had an idea of the arc of the film because we listened to his audiobook and that was a starting point. So when I watched his movies, I knew what I was looking for, you know. Yeah. Um, and I had an assistant editor who helped. And um, but, but like I said, I get obsessive about it and I need to go through this kind of material. But my, my, my girlfriend would laugh at me when I'd come home from work in the evening and she'd say, I'd, I'd be kind of giving out because I was tired uh, because I'd been watching Michael J. Fox movies all day and she's like, that's not going to pass in this house. We've got two kids to look after. <laughs> but we had to do it and, and and I think it paid off. I think, you know, you know, I, I have a very good understanding of all the movies and TV shows. The, the movies are easy because there's not that many. You know, he, he made a lot of great movies but Back to the Future and all that kind of stuff I, I kind of already knew. It was Family Ties. Was the, mm-hmm. That was the big one. You know, this you're talking about maybe seven seasons and um, over yeah. the course of nine years and that, that was really hard. Spin City was the same once we started digging into that I was like six seasons. Yeah. So we just had to come up with a system. Yeah. Well you certainly did and I think I mis- misquoted uh, the title of the movie. It's Bright Lights Big City of course. But Bright that, Lights. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That brings me on to Tracy Pollan his wife who we met in, in, in Family Ties. You know it, it seems to me that two of the pinch points in the movie are the relationship with his father and also his marriage to Tracy Pollan, like the day he gets diagnosed and he rings mm. her with Parkinson and she just says to him on the phone in sickness and in health. It's 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 just beautiful. I mean, I don't want to put words yeah. in your mouth, but I watched it with my wife and we were just both taken by, look, there's two people, but she's an angel if that's not a pejorative kind of thing. Like she's the emotional heart of this in a way outside of him. Yeah. Yeah, and she she shows up a few times in the movie and, and, and kind of, you know, owns it, really, really owns it, um, and owns him. Oh, that owns him is the wrong word, but puts him in his place in the mm. best way possible. Yes. Um, and 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 that, that's, you know, she she is an incredible character, and I'm so glad that that's come across in the film because that was the big one of the big surprises for me when we started to make it. I was like... Who is this? And 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 she is an amazing actress as well. But um, the moment where 
you know, we all hear, we, you, know, you hear the words in sickness and health all the time. And it's kind of almost sometimes loses its meaning a bit. You're like, okay, in sickness and health, whatever. But in that context of what's happening in that moment in the film, it, it, I was the same as you, it really, kind of, it really blew me away. I was like, yeah. she means that. This is not, this, 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 this is honest. And I also love the moment, it's a similar thing where they're in the uh, in family ties and they're hanging out. It's the moment he falls in love with her, but I don't want to give too much away, but yeah. she calls him out for being a, I don't know if I can use the word on this, but um, you'll see it when you watch the movie, but she, yes. she basically calls him out on on his, his uh, shall we say, arrogance at that point. Yeah. And, um, and he just needed it, you know. Yeah, he was getting a bit too big for his boots, uh, which I hadn't realised as well. And your film is full of all those fascinating insights. And for anyone who's a Michael J. Fox fan and anyone who's a, a fan of the human condition, it, it, it's a remarkable movie. It really is. Listen, I'm going to let you go now. Thank you so much. I know you have loads of these to do and stuff, but let me just ask him finally. Like you've subsequently met Michael J. Fox plenty of times, I think, mm. and I gather he's from what I've read, he's he's very fond of the job you did in the film. Seems to be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Um, I hope he is. I think he is. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, he, they were very complimentary when they, um, when they watched it, or they watched it a few times. You know, rough versions of it, but mm. um, yeah, he's and, I, and I'm delighted that it, that that. That we were able to tell his story in this way and do do it justice, and uh, it's an incredible story. Like I'm just literally the messenger here, and we, we do it in a certain way. But he's he's, I think I I hope he's happy. But yeah, so from what I've heard, he, he is, and and if the audience are and Tracy is and anybody I know that watches it, you know they like it. It's job done. Absolutely. And then I lied. The final question: Then when you did first yeah. meet him, was it were you really trying to rein in your fanboyism? <laughs> The first time I met him was when we showed him a rough cut of the okay. film. It was the first time we had a cut. So he walked in the room and, um, I, I, you know, I get I get nervous at the best time showing anybody a cut of any film I work on. But when I, you meet Michael J. Fox and say, this is what I consider to be the best hour and a half of your 60-year life. Mm. Here's all the things I cut out. Um, <laughs> that's quite a, it's quite a way to meet someone. And, yeah. and um, I've kind of gotten better with 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 my my kind of nerves over the years when I'm when I'm working, but that one was on a different level, and the lights went down, and 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 it was the literally the longest hour and a half of my life, and mm. um, the lights went up, and he loved it, he he loved it, and he got he got emotional about his father, and um, had some really good suggestions, but. It was, it's quite a way to meet somebody. I I, I don't recommend it. <laughs> yeah. Still is a great piece of work. It's on Apple TV. It's going to be in the Palais in Galway and it's going to be in the Lighthouse in Dublin. I've been talking to its editor, Michael Hart. Michael, well done and lovely to talk to you. Thanks, John. Michael Hart there talking to him about the wonderful Still a Michael J. Fox movie. And you can watch it on Apple TV or you can go and see it in the cinema in the Lighthouse in Dublin or the Palais in Galway. Up next, a great new Irish movie, Lakelands. Now, 
currently in cinemas is a great new movie called Lakelands. We have the character Keen, played brilliantly by Aina Hartwick, who plays a young farmer who's up until now been happy with his lot, contentedly alongside his far- father, working on a farm. His father, played by Lorcan Cranage, who's brilliant as well. He's partying with his friends, he's performing well on the pitch, but his world is shattered when a serious head injury forces him off the field and he struggles to reimagine an identity in the small Midland town where GAA is well, a religion of sorts. Some comfort arrives in the in the shape of an old girlfriend played by Danielle Galligan. She's home from London to nurse her ailing father. She has some issues of her own going on. It looks at issues of masculinity, male violence, and of course, the power and the devotion and the sometimes strange devotion to GAA. Lakelands is the debut feature from writers and directors and indeed producers Robert Higgins and Patrick McGivney. And it's set in their hometown of Granard. It is rightly getting rave reviews. And Chris Wasser, who was on this show earlier, has described it as the best Irish movie of the year so far. High praise indeed. I'm delighted to say the two gentlemen, Robert and Patrick, join me now. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? Yeah, John. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, John. My pleasure, my pleasure. Now, you know, they say when it comes to first stories, whether it's a novel or a movie, a lot of people kind of write the story they're dying to tell or the story that's been with them all their lives that they just have to get out. I mean, that's one theory. It might be bullshit, but I've seen a, a certain amount of truth in it. Was was that with you guys, with the GAA thing in small town Ireland and it's set in your hometown? Has this been bursting inside you for a long time? And either of you can answer that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's just one of those stories, I suppose, we would always talk about when we grew up together, myself and Patrick. So we were always kind of talking about this, you know, on any night out or you'd be in, in the pub and this would always come up. And when it came to the time to actually make our first feature, we were very set on kind of, I suppose, depicting our hometown and a big part of the culture of our hometown is GAA. Mm. And it had just such a unique world and, you know, the dedication and at times obsession that comes hand in hand with it. We just felt it was uh, such a, a ripe and, and fruitful area to kind of delve into and dig in. Yeah. And Patrick, may- maybe you can tell me this. I mean, the idea of, you know, I, I speak to directors all the time, but the idea of two people directing something and two people writing something and two people producing something, I mean, it might be very collaborative, but I don't know, is it hard? Because you're friends as well. Um, yes, it's a, it's a good question, I suppose. Um, I suppose for us, it, it probably came naturally, it came quite easy, just given the fact that we'd grown up together. We played together on, on teams kind of from, from a very early age and I suppose you do develop a bit of a shorthand um, with your close friends. And I think what's really kind of benefited myself and Robert is just having similar reference points, obviously growing mm-hmm. up in the same town, knowing similar characters. Um, and I think that really, uh, well, that was really beneficial when it came to our writing initially, because obviously when you're writing a character, you're you're referencing different people you know. And yeah. I think also just having the same kind of language Um you know, there's there's certain kind of colloquialisms in Granard that only make sense to a, a Midlander, I, I, I suppose. And, <laughs> and I think that's kind of bled into our uh, directing then as well. And, and mm. yeah, we've just, we, we definitely feel very blessed to have had the opportunity to just go on this journey with a, with a close friend and, and someone who you, you really trust and, and know very well. And you still appear to be talking to each other. So, you know, yeah. mission accomplished. <laughs> Let's... Fingers, yeah. 
<laughs> Let's talk about the movie a bit. Kean, the character played by Aina Hardwick. First of all, Aina Hardwick is, is tremendous in it. What I really like about him is he presents as this, you know, and I think we all know them. I certainly did, and you guys certainly did, that, that the guy who seems to have the sun shining on him, you know, if that's your persuasion, women are into him. He's working with his dad. He's a star of the GAA team. But yet, when trouble comes to him, he shows that there's more to him, that there's there's more sensitivity, that he has, that he has hidden depths, maybe. Uh, w- w- was that what you were trying to get into? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, in a big way. Um, I suppose a big thing we talked about was kind of, in our work, we often to look at some of these kind of small town characters or archetypes who are often kind of, you know, sometimes presented as little 2D in, in, mm. in some depictions. And it was always of interest for us to kind of um, go into their internal world and kind of see the vulnerabilities uh, what motivates them, what keeps them up at night, and just kind of give as, as human a portrait as possible. Because, yeah, I suppose everyone, um, no matter how look, good it looks out on the outside, they've kind of got that internal world. Mm-hmm. And we felt that it was just uh, it was a, a, a viewpoint, I suppose, we hadn't seen that much in other, in other work. So we were kind of really eager to kind of just dive into that. Yeah. Now I'm a dub, but you know, I, I've traveled the length and breadth of the country and all that. And my mother's from Kildare and you know, the Friday night or whatever night it was when lads particularly are going out on the town. And now let's be honest about it. There's plenty of drug taking. It seems from afar that I can see on these nights out the capturing of the, the social scene in, in, in Midlands, Ireland. I, I just thought it was so on the money and there was nothing stage Irishy about it. And Patrick, were you keen to, I don't know, make that as real and almost organic as possible? Yeah, for sure. I think that was kind of, uh, kind of a core objective of ours from, from the offset. And I suppose it didn't just relate to the kind of going out culture. It, it, it kind of related to obviously the GA aspect, the farming aspect, just rural life in general. I think we mm-hmm. were very keen to, I suppose, just hold a mirror up to, um, midland life as we saw it, um, and to try and capture it with, with with as much authenticity as as we possibly could. And I suppose there was an opportunity in that. We definitely seen there was a big opportunity to capture this world that hadn't really been depicted um, from a midlander's perspective to date. Um, so there was a big opportunity there in our in our own minds. But there was also just a practicality of having access to. Um, this world having access to uh, uh, our local GA team, St Mary's Granard, you know, having access to a local farm. But yeah. also, we've had such tremendous support from the local pubs in Granard um, and the local nightclub in Longford, Spiral Tree, and they just opened their doors and, and welcomed us in. And um, you know, when when we were shooting there, it was in between kind of COVID lockdown, so people had been deprived of kind of pubs and uh, yeah. nightclubs in particular for quite a while. So we had no problem filling it up for for those scenes. And, <laughs> I think you know that was a happy uh, happenstance, I suppose, for us because it just meant that that you know there was a a real buzz in in the nightclub in particular, which we were able to capture uh, on film, thankfully. 
Yeah, well, you captured it really well. And you mentioned farming. You also capture farming really well, that it's, you know, it's not this guy out walking the land. It's it's mucky and it's messy and it's cow's blood and you're not sure if calves are alive and all that. that that's a really, that's really well done in it, I have to say as well. Tell me this, uh, Lorcan Cranich, I've loved him in everything I've seen him in, particularly in Cracker when when I was a young lad. I just thought, and I, it's a show I returned to. He's a brilliant, brilliant actor. And I don't want to give a spoiler, but I, I'm just going to tell you my favorite scene in it. And, you know, maybe it's my own father issues. Who knows? But he hugs Keen at one point in it and no one expects it. And it's absolutely beautiful. And and just to, you know, I mentioned to you before we came on, I, I watched it with my wife and that was the pinch point for her when she was most upset in a movie that is most emotional. Without giving, I don't know, too much away, did, did, did Lorcan, I, I presume he takes everything very seriously as an actor, but did he, did he spend a lot of time on that scene with Aina? Because to me, it's the, it's the heart and soul of the movie and I hope I haven't ruined it for people. Yeah, like I think that's uh, that's a point that a lot of people have, have kind of flagged us uh, connecting with, so it's great to hear that it uh, resonated. But yeah, Lorcan was amazing to work with. And, you know, we were very kind of, I suppose, aware that that scene was one of the emotional uh, centers of the whole film. Mm. So what was great about it, uh, we were lucky that we were able to get uh, Aina and Lorcan uh, down to Longford for um, a couple of days of rehearsing and just living as the characters and getting used to all the the localities and building up to that emotional point and getting used to, I suppose, for much of the film, I suppose, uh, their relationship is marked by their inability to communicate. In, yeah. They communicate, but it's always via discussions of work. Or, you know, it's it's their own language, but it's it's not the most uh, emotionally eloquent, I suppose. And I suppose, yeah, Lorcan and Aina just did incredible work in in mapping that relationship, so it would get to uh, to that, I suppose, emotional catharsis moment. And uh, yeah, we we're just so lucky to have such. Uh, two brilliant actors who were able to able to do such great work on it. They did indeed do great work. Tell me this, and this isn't off the ball, so we can be moved quickly on from this, but are either of you decent GAA players? Um, yeah, can you I, summon your false humility and tell me the truth? <laughs> um, so yeah, myself and Rob obviously grew up playing it, and um, Rob saw sense at 18 and, and went off to live his life, but I stuck <laughs> around for, for quite a few years. I, I was playing football, um, senior football with Granard um, until very recently. Um, so I've hung up the boots in the last few okay. months. But um, yeah. Okay, okay. And listen, finally then, uh, you guys both had real jobs. You were like in media and consulting and all that stuff and just decided to go and follow the dream. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So up until... I suppose we started our company Heart Media about five years ago, but it was it was part time for a long time where we were trying to build it up. And I was in yeah PR and Paddy was in uh, financial consultant. So a lot of the kind of up until the making of the film, it was kind of being done in the evenings, and we were kind of trying to build up our, the work within our company that would be able to support us. But um, yeah, I guess it was just something we always talked about in the evenings. We'd meet up after work and like we just were really itching for something creative. And uh, the more we did this with the shorts, the more we were like, this is what we really want to do. So we kind of just kept pushing for it and um, made, made the, made the leap just before Lakelands. And yeah, it's been, it's been great so far. Good. Well, as Eddie Van Halen says, keep jumping or something like that. 
<laughs> so Lakelands is on release. It's currently in cinemas. It opened last week and hopefully it's going to run for a long, long time. Chris Wasser has described it as the best movie, Irish movie of the year so far. And I'm not far behind him in that approbation. I've been talking to its writers, its writers, directors, and indeed producers, Robert Higgins and Patrick McGivney. Gentlemen, the best of luck with it. It's a fantastic movie. Thanks so much, Sean. Thanks so much, Sean. Do you remember anything about the attackers? We're at the same age as me, but could be anyone. Three on one, boys. Sure, this is fair, Andy. Consider yourself lucky. Some lads don't get the chance to come back from an injury like this. Stay away from the football till you're back to yourself. Grand holiday for you. I'm telling you, lads, if I'd been there, it would have went down different. Since when is Grace home? Thought we'd lost you to the English. Can't have passengers this year. Need you leading by example. Don't worry about me. And don't give me reason to them. People go away and then they think they're different to the people who stayed. You've got such a chip on your shoulder against anyone that ever left. A clip there from Lakelands, which is on release in cinemas currently as we speak. And it is a wonderful movie. I was very taken by it and you heard me talking to its two directors and writers and producers Robert Higgins and Patrick McGivney that is it for this week thanks to Anne-Marie Kane who helped out on the show there is not going to be a show next week I'm going off to Singapore with Bobby Kerr you don't hear that phrase too often but there you go so we're taking a little week off so don't miss me too much in the meantime I'll be working, so get in touch with me. John underscore Friday is my Twitter handle, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com if you want to talk about anything to do with the movies or anything at all. I'll just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm on Newstalk. Thank you very much for listening, and I shall talk to you very soon.